Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Psalm 90. While you're turning there, and I, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open, we've got several places to look at together today as background to this psalm, not the least of which is Psalm 89, which is where I was, the passage I was in when I was with you the last time. Uh, but before we get to that passage, I do want to say what a blessing it is to be here on this occasion, Mark and Connie, to be here with you, uh, and to have Ann with me. Ann doesn't always get to be with me at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and Ann, just stand real quick so people can wave at you. This is Ann, and um, I'm so glad she could be here on this occasion. Um, 43 years ago, I first came to Capitol Hill Baptist Church as a 15-year-old U.S. Senate page. My eighth-generation Southern Presbyterian father dropped me off at Miss May Pickett's boarding house right around the block and said, now, son, don't go to a Presbyterian church here on the hill because they won't believe the Bible, they won't preach the gospel, and they don't believe in Jesus. You go find a Baptist church where they believe the Bible and preach the gospel, and you go there. And so that next Sunday, I wandered around the corner to the Capitol Hill Metropolitan Baptist Church right here. Uh, this wasn't open. Sunday school was up there. Uh, Sunday school was taught by a man named Steve on the doctrines of grace. And uh, I knew that I was home. And um, 32 years ago, I met Mark and Connie uh, in their home in Cambridge, England. Connie cooked for me. Uh, Mark and Connie, I sang hymns with their little crumb crunchers uh, after, the, the, after the meal. Uh, with, with Mark playing on the piano uh, in their home in Cambridge. So 32 years I've had the blessing of knowing Mark and Connie. And 25 years ago, Mark became the pastor here at the Capitol Hill, then Metropolitan Baptist Church, now Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, the Lord has been faithful. And in many ways, um, our God, our help in ages past, our hope, for years to come could be a motto for Mark and Connie's lives and ministries together in Christ. So it, it's altogether appropriate that we be in Psalm 90. Uh, I have something of a little sermon series going on the Psalms here at CHBC. It started in Psalm 88, it went to Psalm 89, and, it, and, it, and now we're in Psalm 90. And I, I must say that the last time I was here in Psalm 89, I had, in the course of my study in preparation for that sermon, learned something about Psalm 89 that I'd never seen before. And once again, I've learned something about Psalm 90 that I've never seen before in preparing for this sermon. And that is, in particular, the connection between this psalm and the previous psalm. You will notice, if you look in your Bibles, that this psalm is the beginning of Book 4 of the Psalter. There are five books of the Psalter. This is the fourth book of the Psalter. But even though this psalm is in a different book of the Psalter than Psalm 89, I think that the reason it is here is because of Psalm 89. Uh, if you'll allow your eyes to look back at Psalm 89, you will notice that that song begins with exuberant rejoicing. We will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. But by the end of Psalm 89, it is a lament and a dirge. And especially if you look at verse 38 of Psalm 
89, but thou hast cut off and rejected, thou hast been full of wrath against thine anointed, thou hast spurned thy covenant of thy servant, thou hast profaned his crown in dust. And so what, what's happened is the psalm begins celebrating God's promises to David and to Israel to give a kingdom that will not end and to give them rest in the land. But then, beginning in verse 38 and following, it reckons with the end of the Davidic monarchy and the exile. And the great question is this, Lord, have your promises failed? You said David would always have a king on the throne. And if you, if you let your eyes look, at 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 7, you'll see how the Davidic monarchy ended. Zedekiah is captured by Nebuchadnezzar. His children are brought in front of him. They are slaughtered. And then his eyes are put out. So that the last thing, it, it's interesting, Nebuchadnezzar must have known about the prophecies that God had made to David. And so Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I'm going to cause the prophecies of your God to fail. And he kills what he thinks is the last of the Davidic kingly line, and then he put Zedekiah's eyes out, and then he doesn't kill him. He takes him to Babylon in exile, living for the rest of his life, having the last thing that he ever saw, he thinks, the end of the Davidic line. And of course, that's the fate of all of Israel. Israel gets carried off into exile, and for 70 years, they're in exile. And this psalm, Psalm 89, is lamenting that situation. Lord, you said we'd have rest in the land. Lord, you said David would always be on the throne. Now David is not on the throne, and we're in exile. Have your promises fail. So the greatest theological problem at the end of the Old Testament is a promise. The promise that we'd always be in the land and the promise that David would always be on the throne. And all of the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, are wrestling with that issue. And so many of the Psalms are wrestling with that issue. Now I think that is why Psalm 90 begins the fourth book of the Psalms. What's happening is, as the people of God come to grips with how do we process this, they go back to the oldest psalm in the Psalter from a time almost 500 years before the exile. They go back to about 1446 B.C. or 1406 B.C., somewhere in there in the time, the 15th century before Christ, when Moses has led the children of Israel out of uh, the house of bondage and slavery and the land of Egypt and towards the promised land, but Moses doesn't get to go in. Remember? Moses sees the promised land from Pisgah, but he doesn't go in. Why? Because of his sin. And isn't it interesting? Here the people of God facing the loss of the monarchy, the seeming failure of God's promises, and exile from the land, go back to what God had taught Moses almost 500 years before. They go back to his situation. You see, this, this psalm 
is a psalm specifically about where you find hope and support in the troubles of the exile, but it generally applies to how the people of God find help and support in any and every time of trouble in all of our seasons. The the faithfulness of God to the generations of God's people is ours. It belongs to us because our God belongs to us, and the hope that he has given us in his word belongs to us. For us. So, though this psalm, Psalm 90, is a sober and sobering psalm, by the way, so often appointed to be read at funerals. Before funerals started working so hard to make us not think about death, right? We don't go to funerals anymore, we go to celebrations of life, don't we? Now, there's a Christian way to do that, but there's a Disney way of doing that, right? And most of our generation does the Disney way, right? Let's not think about death. Let's not think about pain. Let's not think about loss. Let's let's not think about the brevity of life. Let's not think about the length of eternity. Let's not think about the weight of sin. Let's celebrate life. And let's tell funny stories and cute remembrances, and try and mute and dull the raw pain that ought to be here because we know this is not how it was supposed to be. And so this psalm used to be read at funerals. Why? Because it's raw, and it's real, and it's sober, and it's sobering, but it is filled with hope. And so I want to look with this psalm with you today. As we do so, let me just outline it. As I thought about outlining this psalm, I have outlined it about 40 ways in the last month. I honestly have. Partly because all of this psalm is about God. I mean, the whole thing is about God. So so when, when when I give you this outline, don't think that the whole thing isn't about God. The whole thing's about God. But you could outline it this way. First, first section, verses one and two, God. God, our home. Second section, verses 3 to 6, death and the brevity of life. Third section, verses 7 to 11, sin and judgment. Sin, the cause of death, death, the judgment of God. God, death, sin. And then verses 12 to 17, grace. I mean, the the psalm itself sounds like a gospel outline, doesn't it? God, death, sin, grace. It is. It is. We'll get there over and over. But don't as we, as we work through it, remember, please remember this. It's all about God. It's all about God. In the first half of the psalm, our God is contrasted to us. But the contrast is meant to be an encouragement, not a discouragement. He's contrasted to us. But it's, that's meant to be an encouragement, 
not a discouragement. The second half of the psalm is a prayer. So 1 through 11, contrast. 12 to 17, prayer. You're already beginning to pick up on how many outlines I've, have, I've had of this, of this, of this psalm. But, but they all make sense because God has the power in his inspired word to say more than one thing at once, but we human beings can't say more than one thing at once. We have to say one thing at a time. And so he tells us a lot of things in this psalm. Well, let's give attention to God's word, and before we do, let's pray and ask for his help and blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers, the flowers they fade and they fall, but your word stands forever. Sanctify us with truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is given by inspiration. It is God-breathed. It is profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for training, for reproof, for correction, for equipping in righteousness that we may be prepared for every good work. So speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it beginning in Psalm 90, verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet, their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. 
Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. This psalm is about God, death, sin, and grace. And about how we find help and hope in time of troubles. It was born out of a time, out of an experience of trouble in the lives of the people of God. Out of Moses' troubles. Think, think of how he would have felt he's that close to the promised land. And he hears the words of the Lord. You may see it, Moses, but you may not enter. Because even the old covenant mediator needed someone to mediate for his sin. But think of the heartbreak. You have spent 80 years of your life to bring the people to the promised land and you can see it and you can't go in. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. And so the people of God facing exile and the end, the seeming failure of God's promises in the end of the monarchy go back to Moses in time of trouble for help and support in their time of trouble. And the first thing that God does for us in this psalm is point us to himself. Notice, notice that in verses 1 and 2. Lord, by the way, that's not the name of Yahweh there. That's emphasizing the Lord as the sovereign ruler over us. Lord as in Adonai, as opposed to Lord as in Yahweh, the personal name of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth forever, you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. In other words, the psalm begins by squarely focusing us on God. The reality of God dominates the psalmist's mind and heart as he contemplates present trouble. God is bigger than our troubles. God lasts longer than our troubles. God dwarfs our troubles. Our, our troubles are put in a shadow by the shadow that he casts. 
And so, this is so often how God comforts in the Bible. It begins with God. When you're reckoning with your situation, when you're reckoning with your troubles, the first thing you have to reckon with is God. Now, I could, I could exhaust our time just going to examples, but let me point to two examples in the Old Testament and one in the New. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. God has made a promise to Abram in Genesis 12 that he is going to make him a great nation. When you get to Genesis 15, 25 years later, he is still childless. Now, he has won a great battle against the Canaanite kings, and he's rescued his nephew Lot, and he has come back with treasures from his conquest, and God comes to him a second time in Genesis 15, He's been spared against his foes. He's been prospered in battle, but he still doesn't have a son. And how does God announce himself in Genesis 15:1? Abram, I am your shield and great reward. Notice this. I'm your shield and great reward. You know, Abram's, Abram's mind is on the promise of a son. That's the reward. That's the inheritance that he's looking for, and rightly so, because God has told him to look for that. When are you right to believe a promise? Anytime God makes it to you. Okay? So Abram's not wrong in believing that promise. But what is Abram's greatest reward? God himself. So I'm a shield to you and your great reward. Turn to Genesis 17. Same thing. 25 years later. Now it's been 50 years that Abram has been walking with God. And still, no son by Sarah. They've had the, the abortive attempt to fulfill God's promise in their own way in Genesis 16. So Sarah suggests, well, Hagar could sire a child on our behalf, and we could adopt him as our own, and maybe this is how God will fulfill his promise, and that has been an unmitigated disaster. And so you come to, to, to Abram in Genesis 17, and again, his faith is flagging. And how does God introduce himself to Abram in Genesis 17, 1 and following? Abram, I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. I, your God can do anything. The Chinese evangelist Leland Wong on his stationery had two scripture verses. The sun stood still. The iron did float. Remember when the axe head floated? This God is our God. You see what he's saying? Our God can do anything. That's exactly what God is coming to Abram and saying. Abram, just remember who I am. I am God Almighty. All power in heaven and earth is mine. I can do anything. Do not stop believing who I am. Now, by the way, Jesus does the same thing in John 14. Turn to John 14, 1. 
He's just, in John 13, he's just told the disciples that he is going to die tomorrow. He has just told the disciples that one of them is going to betray him into the hands of his enemies. And if, if, if there had ever been a time where Jesus had the right to be locked in on his own concerns and troubles, I mean, after all, a, a few hours later, after John 14, 1, he is going to be out in the garden praying, sweating as with drops of blood, and begging God to let this cup pass from him if it is possible. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But notice how locked in he is on his disciples. He's not thinking about him, he's thinking about them. And so how does John 14 begin? Let not your hearts be troubled. John's already told us that he was deeply troubled even when he entered into Jerusalem that week. His heart was, he knew what was coming. They didn't realize what was coming. He knew what was coming, but his concern is for them, let not your heart be troubled. Now, what do you think might be the source of comfort that he points them to? Believe in God, believe also in me. So what's the source of our comfort in trouble? God! <laughs> That's how the psalm begins. It starts with God. Uh, J.I. Packer used to say, the secret of soul-fatting Bible study. You, you, you remember, remember how you used to be complimented by your, your, your aunt or your mother? Oh, you're so fat. You know, that's good. You're healthy, you know? You got some meat on your bones. Okay? Um, the secret of soul-fatting Bible studies, and Bible study that's going to put meat on your bones, is to ask the question, what does this passage teach me about my God? First question. What does this passage teach me about my God? And so the psalm begins with our focus on God. Now, notice this focus continues throughout the psalm. That's why I said I could outline this psalm this way. God. Okay? But it starts out in verses 1 and 2, God our home. Think of it. These people are exiles. They are not at home. But they've still got a home. God is their home. They're not in Israel. They're in Babylon. Moses wasn't in the promised land. He was outside the promised land. But God is still home. And isn't, it, isn't it beautiful? The psalm doesn't say, Lord, you have given us a dwelling place. It says, Lord, you are our dwelling place. My father died in 1992, about six months after Ann and I were married. And um, I think that was the last time I ever felt home in this world. Because dad really made home. I got a wonderful mother and a wonderful family. But dad made home. I, I can remember 
driving home from seminary in St. Louis in the 1980s or earlier, going up to Louisville to see friends in the early 1980s and driving back through the mountains of, of eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina and thinking I'm almost an hour from home and if I can just get my foot across the threshold of my father's house, I'll be home. And the psalmist says, God is home. He's always been our home. He's always been our people's home. No matter where they sojourn, he is home. Uh, do you use C.H. Spurgeon's morning and evening? Um, he says this on November the 10th. The word refuge, he's talking about the, the, the KJV translation, Lord, thou hast been our refuge. He rightly points out that actually it's better translated here, not as refuge, but as dwelling place. The word refuge may be translated mansion or abiding place, which gives the thought that God is our abode, our home. There is a fullness and sweetness in the metaphor, for dear to our hearts is home, although it be the humblest cottage or the scantiest garret. And dearer far is our blessed God in whom we live and move and have our being. It is at home that we feel safe. We shut the world out and we dwell in quiet security. So when we are with our God, we fear no evil. He is our shelter and retreat, our abiding refuge. At home, we take our rest. It is there we find repose after the fatigue and toil of the day. And so our hearts find rest in God. When wearied with life's conflict, we turn to him and our soul dwells at ease. At home also, we let our hearts loose. We are not afraid of being misunderstood nor of our words being misconstrued. So when we are with our God, we can commune freely with him, laying open all our hidden desires. For if the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, the secrets of them that fear him ought to be and must be with their Lord. Home, too, is the place of our truest and purest happiness. And it is in God that our hearts find their deepest delight. We have joy in him which far surpasses all other joy. And it is for home that we work and labor. The thought of it gives strength to bear the daily burden and it quickens the fingers to perform the task. And in this sense, we may also say that God is our home. Love to him strengthens us. We think of him in the person of his dear son and a glimpse of the suffering face of the Redeemer constrains us to labor in his cause. We feel that we must work for we have brethren yet to be saved and we have our father's heart to make glad by bringing home his wandering sons and we would fill with holy mirth the sacred family among whom we dwell. Happy are those who have thus the God of Jacob for their refuge. That's our God. He's our home. God is our home. Wherever we wander, God is our home. We may be pilgrims, but we have a home. 
and that home is God. But then, death immediately is before our eyes in this psalm. Look, especially in verses 3 to 6. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Now, clearly Genesis 1 to 3, and especially maybe Genesis 3, is on the mind of Moses as he writes this psalm. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 19. In God's judgment against Adam for his sin, one of the things that he says is this. By the sweat of your face, Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now listen to the language again in Psalm 90 verse Three, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. This is, this, it's a picture of decreation, isn't it? In creation, God takes dirt and makes a man. In death, man, a living, breathing being in the image of God, returns to dirt and dust. It's decreation. And so the psalm asks us to reckon with death. And we have this contrast. We are ephemeral. God is eternal. Notice the next line. For a thousand years in your sight are as but as yesterday when it is past. We're gone like that. 25 years is a long time, but it's not. It's not. We're like that. But he's not. So isn't it interesting? There's, there's, there's a little play going on here. On the one hand, we are brought soberly before our brevity. But his eternality is not just a contrast to our brevity. It's a comfort for it. You see... Moses isn't just giving us an antithesis. We are short, God is long. We are brief, God is eternal. He's giving us an answer to our brevity, to our shortness. We are short, He is not. He is long, He is eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting. In other words, it's not just a contrast between man the ephemeral and God the eternal, it's a comfort. So though our lives may seem like... Mark and I can remember when we thought we were young Turks. God is long. And that's actually their help and their hope in this circumstance because they're scratching their heads saying Lord have your promises failed 
And, you know, he might as well have said, just hold on to your horses. In 600 years, I'm getting around to this. <laughs> but they'll be gone. So what do they have to do in the meantime? Remember that God has an amazing long game. He has an amazing long game. His span is not our span. So we ought to be sobered by that brevity, but encouraged by his eternity. His long game is amazing. And oftentimes, the things that we long to see in our lives, if we could live as long as he, we would see. Third, then he ties in death and sin, doesn't he? Look at, especially at verse 7. It's hinted at, isn't it, in verse 3, return, O children of man. You, you've got Adam all over you there in verse 3, but it really focuses on the contrast between our shortness and transitoriness of life and his eternity. But when you get to verse 7, it's just blunt and uh, very clear. We are brought to an end by your anger. Why is it that we're turned to dust? Because of your anger, because of your wrath, because of your righteous judgment against sin. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of of your presence. In other words, the reason we die is because of sin. Sometimes we say he died of old age. And that's understandable. I'm not trying to critique the, the, the phrase, but actually we all die of sin. Since by man came death. Why? Sin, death. Through Adam's sin, death came into this world. We die of sin. So in verses 7 to 11, we've gone from God as home in verses 1 and 2, God as eternal in verses 3 to 6, God as just judge in verses 7 to 11. So that we understand that death is the judgment of God against sin. Now this will be, again, ironically both sobering and comforting. Because one of the things that the prophets will say as to why is, why is Israel in exile? Why is David not on the throne? One of the answers that they will give is sin. God didn't break his promises, we broke ours. God didn't break his covenant. We broke his covenant. We're experiencing the just deserts of sin. This isn't a failure in God's word. It's a fulfillment of God's word when he judges sin. Yes, something is wrong because God made us to glorify and enjoy him forever. But the something that's wrong is not his word. The something that's wrong is our sin. That is is what has brought curse and death and judgment, not the failure of God's promise. And, and the psalmist is doing the same thing here. Why is Moses on Pisgah and not in the promised land? Sin. Why is Israel in exile and not in the promised land? Sin. 
Why is David not on the throne? Sin. God is a just judge. And he will deal with our sins. Even And notice those haunting words, our secret sins. I was talking to a faithful, godly minister who struggles with same-sex attraction. He is committed to the Bible's teaching on sexuality. Sex is for one man, one woman, in marriage, period. And he said to me, it's a dangerous thing for me to hide my sin. He, I, he needs to be in a, a context of friends in the ministry, and he has them, who know the struggles of his heart. Lest he try to live one way outwardly and another way privately. Because our God knows our secret sins. It may be your secret sins that get you. The ones that nobody knows about. It's a dangerous thing for no one to know your heart. It's a dangerous thing for no one to know your heart. You need pastors and elders and close friends, family members in Christ who know your heart and who can fight the fight against sin with you. Because God knows our secret sins. They're ever before him. So the, 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 psalmist, the psalmist here, is he's pointed us to God our home. He's pointed us to God eternal. Now he points us to God as judge. This death, this exile, these troubles, it all gets back to sin. It all gets back to original sin and to the failure of our first parents, which has been passed down to all their descendants descending from them by ordinary generation. So he's, he's, he begins this psalm just pointing us to God, God, God. Put, put your troubles and your sorrows in light of who God is. Now, then he starts to pray. That's the second part of the psalm. Let's go there. Now he starts to offer up petitions. There are six of them. Six petitions he offers up in light of what he's taught himself and us about God. The first one is this. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. If life is short, if judgment is real, if sin is evil, if eternity is long, we need to number our days. We need to not be like the foolish virgins who were not ready and against whom the door was shut. We need to number our days. We need to remember that this life is not all there is. We need to remember what awaits us, and we need to be preparing for that far more glorious life. 
We are pilgrims here. Life is short. Eternity is long. Number our days. So that we may get a heart of wisdom. So that we may live wisely. Don't presume on a day. Don't presume on a breath. Don't presume you'll wake up in the morning. Second, I love this one. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. It's clear there he's praying for mercy. But don't you love the way he does it? He's just said that because of our sin, God says to us, return. Because of our sin, God returns us to dust. So he prays back to God, Lord, why don't you return? Meaning, Lord, instead of showing your just judgment on us, instead of allowing your righteous wrath to condemn us, would you turn and be gracious towards us? Would you relent in that just judgment and be gracious to us instead? Show your compassion on us. Have pity on us. And it, just, just think about this for a second. In the temptation, it is Satan's design to ruin the crown of God's creation. And when Adam and Eve rebel against God in the first sin, one of the curses against them will be that the crown of God's creation will turn to dust. How does God reverse that? He causes the second person of the Trinity to take upon him dust. Our flesh and then to die in our place, tasting death. A death that he did not deserve, but a death that we did deserve. And then, don't miss this, to be buried. See what's happening? And then what happens? He returns. He rises again from the dead. And then he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty who makes the heavens and the earth. Now, just take, just take in what has happened. Satan, in his temptation, and Adam and Eve, in their sin and rebellion, have caused the crown of God's creation to be reduced to dust. The sinless Son of God takes on our flesh. So now the dust of the earth sits on the throne of the universe. You see what God is doing? Satan, watch this. I'm going to put a human being at the helm of the universe in order to save my people. He is going to be fully human and fully divine at the same time in one person. As you confessed at the beginning of this service, go back and read every word of it. 
And in that way, I am going to foil your design to destroy the crown of my creation, and I'm going to triumph through Jesus in saving them from their sins, and I am going to put human flesh on the throne of this world. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Third petition, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Satisfy us with your, that beautiful Hebrew word, chesed. Your, and it gets translated a gazillion different ways in uh, English Bible translations. Grace, mercy, loving kindness, covenant love, steadfast love. It gets translated all kinds of ways, and, and all kinds of ways in our songs. We've, we've, we've sung already this morning about five different ways this word, this idea. Satisfy us with your covenant love, your steadfast love, your loving kindness. In other words, over and over in the Bible, it's acknowledged that our only hope is not us deserving to be saved or even being pitiable. Our only hope for salvation is in God and in God's love. So when David is confronted by Nathan for his sin, in Psalm 51 he prays, Lord, forgive me. Why? Because of your steadfast love. David knows he's got no claim He's a murderer. He's an abuser of power and an and a, a, a abuser of a, a vulnerable woman in addition to being an adulterer and a liar. And he's, he's broken every one of the commandments. So what's his hope? Have compassion on me because of your steadfast love, your loving kindness, your chesed. And that's the prayer of Moses. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. When we're in exile, when we're in trouble and trial and tribulation, where's our hope? The love of the Lord, which never ends. Nothing, Paul will say at the end of Romans 8, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. Fourth, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. What an, what an amazing, appropriate, and realistic prayer. They have seen hard times. And so here's Moses' prayer. Lord, I've seen hard times. Lord, we've seen hard times. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And what is so glorious is the New Testament completely outstrips this prayer in its answer. Glory inexpressible forever. Completely outstrips this prayer in its answer. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. How about eternal gladness. Will that do? 
Verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. In other words, Lord, show us your salvation. Show us what you're doing in this world. Let us get a glimpse of what you are doing in this world. We feel like where we are right now, we sometimes feel hopeless. We're in trouble. We're in exile. Some of your promises, we don't know how they're going to be fulfilled. But let us at least see some glimpse of your salvation. Isn't this what's going on with Simeon and Anna in the New Testament? You know, Simeon's prayer had been just... Lord, let me behold your salvation. It's really this prayer, verse 16. I I just want to see your salvation. And he holds Jesus in his arms. And he says, Lord, I can go home now. Because all I've wanted to see was your salvation. I wanted to see your work. I, I wanted to see what you were doing in this world. Don't miss this, Christians. No matter what's going on in your lives, God is doing amazing things here in this city and in this world all around you. He is showing his work. Don't miss it. All you have to do is have your eyes open. It's there. No matter what's going on in your life, he's doing it. The psalmist is saying, let your work be shown to your servants and to their children. I want my children to see your work, Lord. Not just me, I want my children to see your work. That's the fifth petition. And then finally... Let the favor of our Lord, the Lord our God, be upon us. How? Establish the work of our hands. How how is it that that Moses wants God's favor to be shown to him? This makes perfect sense. Lord, I've worked for you for 80 years. You didn't let me take the children of Israel into the land. I just want to know that my work will not be in vain. I just want to know that you will use the labors that I have done in your name and for your glory. I just want to know that you'll just use them, Lord. Prosper the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Make it count for something. Isn't that a great and practical prayer? And I have I've thought for two months, Mark, how he's answered that prayer to you. He has allowed you to see the work of your hands for Jesus Christ prosper. They're all around you. And they're they're all over places in churches around the world ministering the name of Christ. He's let you see the work of your hands. He's prospered the work of your hands. My friends, this, this... Psalm is meant to be a comfort to God's people. But but if you don't trust in God, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ as is offered in the gospel, this psalm has no comfort for you but sober warning. If God is not your home, you have no home. If you really haven't reckoned with death, you're not ready for it. If you're hiding your sin from everybody, especially yourself, you're right where Psalm 90 verse 11 says. Look at what he says. Who considers the power of your anger? And it's, it's an amazing thing how we do not reckon with the consequence of our sin. But has it struck you 
the last three years, four years, and I, I don't know what it is. Is it because of social media? Is it because of the, the media in general in our world? How many times have the secret sins of famous people been opened before your eyes? Do not think that yours will remain hidden. And even if they are from the world, they are not from God. And so, for a believer, this is a comfort to know that our God is a just judge, and yet He is gracious. But if you don't know God as a just judge, and you don't know Him in His grace, this is sobering news for you. So what you need to do is you need to pray the prayer of verses 13 and 14. Return, O Lord. Because here's the thing, what, what the psalmist is asking, actually asking God to do is to repent. He, he's, he, in other words, God, instead of showing you, uh, instead of showing us your just judgment, show us your grace instead. Repent. Turn, turn from showing us judgment and, and show us grace. So here's the interesting thing. Before you can repent, God shows compassion. He turns, and that's why your turning matters. So here, I, I, can, I can tell you this. Many people who don't trust in God are afraid of his judgment. You're right to be afraid of his judgment. But here's the thing. Before you ever turn to him, he's already turned to you in graciousness and compassion. Before you ever repent, he's already, the prodigal's father is already running to you to put his robe and ring on you. In fact, he's more ready to forgive you than you are to repent. He's more ready to receive you than you are to turn from your sins. So you need to, you need to repent and you will find a gracious God waiting for you. And then you need to pray, satisfy me with your steadfast love. And he will. Because he has already given his own son so that we would not perish but whoever believes on him will find everlasting life let's pray heavenly father thank you for your word thank you for the troubles of your people that by faith and by the grace of the holy spirit were worked into a comfort for us thank you that you comfort us with yourself, grant that we would trust in Jesus so that all these comforts would be ours. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.